0: Well, you may remember uh, it was almost a year ago to this Sunday that, in preparation to going to New Zealand and teaching on the local church, I, I preached a message called "The Test of a True Church of a True Church." And I, and I talked about this, this matter of church discipline and, and how it's something that is neglected by and large uh, in the church today, and it's not often practiced any longer just because of how unpopular it is and how uncomfortable it is, and so I thought it would be good for us to kind of revisit some of those uh, passages that we looked at uh, just by way of reminder. Peter uh, said that in his, in his first letter to the, to the saints that he wrote to, he said that his goal was to, to stir people up by way of reminder, and uh, it, it's interesting, even in Israel, when I was um, reading passages of Scripture, I didn't read anything that our people hadn't heard before. Um, But it was just reading it in a different context, in a different place that really brought that text to life and it brought new meaning. And so uh, Israel is just a a teachable moment like none other. And uh, I believe this morning is a a teachable moment like few opportunities that we have in the life of our church. When something like this has to happen, I think it's important that we follow it up with some good instruction from God's word just to remind us uh, of, of why we do what we do, and so uh, and instead of calling this the test of a true church, um, and just kind of re- rehashing and regurgitating last year's uh, sermon on this, I want us to think about this this morning um, from the perspective of search and rescue. I appreciate my brother Rusty, as we were ministering to the to the last night, uh, he he used that analogy. So I wanna give credit to whom credit is due, and I thought, what a brilliant analogy of uh, what we have all come to know as church discipline, uh, which sounds negative, right? But really, what is it all about? It's about search and rescue. And uh, I think there's a great deal of of interest and compassion, and there's, there's nothing unpopular or uncomfortable about search and rescue. When you hear about a search and rescue opportunity, it's everyone's all in. Because you know someone's in need and, and, and nobody questions, well, why are they making an announcement about this person and letting everybody know they're missing and, and, or they're lost and it seems kind of insensitive to the family to put their family member's picture on the, on the news and, and, and have everybody see what they look like and send out Amber Alerts and all those things that they do. And we totally get that. We understand that. And our heart grieves for that family. And then we all say, well, how can we be involved in the search and rescue and what's pretty typical of, of any kind of emergency or disaster where there's a loss of life uh, is, is that area, that city, that country will, um, will pull together a search and rescue team. Uh, we just saw it in the news in the last couple of days in Afghanistan, right, with this, this landslide that basically turned this whole town into a graveyard. Thousands of people were buried in this, in this landslide. We've seen, uh, obviously, tornadoes and, and, and uh, missing persons. And so uh, we, we understand the concept of a, a, of a search and rescue team. And so every one of those search and rescue teams has to undergo um, training. They need to be trained in, in, in what they need to do and how they can be most effective in, in their search and rescue efforts of this lost person. And so this morning, I I want us to to consider some essentials to biblical search and rescue. Uh, This is kind of like a training session for us this morning as a search and rescue team. Um, And we need to clearly understand some some essentials here and, and practice them in order to be used by God to lovingly go after our fellow Christians who stray into sin and stray away from the rest of the flock. And so you may remember these principles that we looked at last time, uh, but let me just go through them again with you quickly and and just hopefully let scripture speak for itself and really I didn't say anything profound or 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 different in in Israel, but just let the scriptures speak for themselves, and it it just was a powerful experience, and I I trust as we just flip through the pages of the New Testament this morning that that they'll speak for themselves, and they'll make the case uh, for what we're doing this morning. And so the first essential we can call the principle, the principle, and it's found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And so here's Paul addressing the believers in the church in Galatia, and he's saying, listen, if you know of somebody who is overtaken in some kind of sin, who who are caught, they're trapped." In a sinful lifestyle, a a, a habitual pattern of sin, you who are spiritual, and it doesn't mean that you're like more spiritual than they are, holier-than-thou perspective. No, you have the Spirit of God in you. You are to restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Notice it doesn't say you're supposed to go out and confront them Whack them over the head with a big stick. No, you're to restore them. He gives the purpose, the goal uh, of why we we do this. We want to restore them. We want to bring them back uh, to usefulness in the body of Christ. And we need to do it in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. In other words, we need to also do it humbly, recognizing that as I prayed, but for the grace of God, uh, that would be us. Notice what... It says, and, and by the way, the, the next verse, um, we talked about our responsibility to um, the family this morning, bear one another's burdens. Very important principle, goes right along with Galatians 6, one. bear one another's burdens. Notice James chapter 5. James chapter 5, the last two verses of this letter that the Apostle James wrote, uh, this is how he ended his charge to the um, dispersion, the the Jews that had been uh, dispersed all throughout the land. He says, My brethren, again, speaking to Christians here, this is James 5.19, If anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so the assumption here is that we as the brethren, we as the body of Christ, have a responsibility that when someone strays from the truth, that it's our job to turn them back um, and to turn them from the error of their way. And in so doing, it says that we will save or rescue their soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's the basic principle in Scripture, that we have a responsibility um, to... uh, be uh, a part of a search and rescue uh, effort whenever we uh, see someone who is lost, who has lost their way, if you will, um, in their Christian life. Now let's look at the process, and and probably this is the most familiar passage when it comes to church discipline, and that's Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and usually we start at verse 15 and just and just talk through the process. There's a four-step process here, but in light of this. Uh, analogy of a search and rescue mission, I want you to notice the context here, and I don't know that it ever jumped out at me uh, before now, but until now, but look, look at the context uh, of Matthew 18 and the text on church discipline, verses 15 to 17, but notice the verses that come immediately before it. This is, this is beautiful. This is powerful. This is profound. Verse 12, Jesus says, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and what? Search for the one that is straying. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. This... Um, is a classic image of the role of a shepherd uh, to go after the lost sheep. In fact, it's so meaningful to me. We have a picture in our office center, and you might go in and look at it after service today if you've not seen it, but uh, it hangs in our office center as a visual reminder of what our job is, uh, what our task is as a church and as, a pas- as pastors and as elders, and there's a picture of this, of this beautiful uh, valley uh, down, down here in the valley. And it shows all this, this, this um, herd of sheep grazing peacefully. And then the picture, the painting goes up onto this rocky mountainside. And it shows uh, this, this, this shepherd who has gone away from his sheep hundreds of feet into, up onto this cliff. And he's coming around this very treacherous uh, cliff path towards this little sheep that's caught. Uh, in this bush, right on the edge of the cliff. And uh, the whole idea is the lost sheep, right? And this is where we get that imagery from, that a shepherd is willing to leave the 99 uh, sheep that are just doing fine to go and search for the one that is straying. And in that context, notice what comes right on the heels of that. Verse 15, if your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I don't know if that brings those four steps of church discipline into a different light this morning, but I hope they do, because it's within the context of what? Searching and rescuing a straying sheep. And so Jesus says, let me me show you how to do this. What does that look like practically when you see somebody stray away uh, from the rest of the flock? How do you go after them? Well, let me give you some specific steps to follow. Step number one, is you personally and privately go and talk to that person. In other words, if you see someone in sin, you go and privately and personally go talk to them. No one else needs to know about the situation. You shouldn't tell anybody else, and, and uh, don't be that spiritual you know, uh, gossiper who says, well, you, you know, we need to be praying for this person, and, and, right? Because you just wanna share some juicy gossip, and so you, you mask it in a prayer request, right? Nobody should know about it. You just go personally, privately, uh, for the goal of winning your brother, and if you win your brother, guess what? Process is over. Brother restored, lost sheep brought back into the fold but Jesus knew that always wouldn't be the case. He says if, uh, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. In other words, if, if, if this person doesn't listen to you, doesn't respond, doesn't repent, you need to go find someone else, one or two other people who can come and, and, and bear witness uh, to a second confrontation and they're there to verify that indeed there is sin taking place. There's unrepentant sin. Um, and also, um, if need be, to, 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 to point out that maybe the person that's confronting this sin uh, is not being compassionate, is not being gentle, is not being gracious. And so there's accountability there, not just for uh, the person who's in sin, but there's accountability for the person who's confronting. And it goes both ways. And so, uh, again, the goal is to win the brother. And if, and if that person is won over, that's it. Nobody else needs to know. It, it's kept within the small circle of friends who has, has confronted this individual. Again, Jesus knew that always wouldn't be successful. And so he says, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, this group of two or three witnesses, tell it to the church Tell it to the church. And that's where it can get confusing. Well, what does that mean? How, how, do, you, how do you make a public announcement to the church uh, in some situations, it's most appropriate to maybe communicate that to a person's grow group or their Sunday school class or maybe the group of people that they spend the majority of time with. On, on other occasions, if, if, the, if the sin is widely known, it's, I think it's necessary to, 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 to announce it publicly to the entire church. And again, notice this, this is really only a last resort here. That's the way it's presented. It's a a last resort when a person just stubbornly refuses to repent. And what happens is that, that the confrontation needs to increase in its scope and its intensity in order to apply more pressure, more spiritual pressure on that person to repent. And to increase to whatever level the knowledge of that sin as necessary to bring about change. And notice how, it, how he words this. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, do you get the spirit of that? That if he won't listen to one person, if they don't listen to two or three people, maybe they'll listen to the whole church in love, confronting them. And so basically what Jesus is proposing here is that you gang up on a person in love and say, we love you too much to just let you wander off. And, and, and you wouldn't listen to one of us or two of us, so we're all coming out after you. Why? Because we love you. And so, you know, instead of just having one person out looking for a guy, right, or two or three people out looking for a missing person, right, let's get the whole town Let's close work, let's close the shops and the offices, and let's all come together and let's just blanket this town looking for this lost person. That's the idea, that's the spirit of this. And it says if he refuses to listen even to the church, the fourth and final step, it says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you treat them like an unbeliever, That was the category of a Gentile a tax collector, right? They were unbelievers um, in the Jewish mindset that Jesus was talking to. So you treat them like an unbeliever, why? Do you know for sure they're an unbeliever? No, not necessarily. We don't know a person's heart, but they're acting like one. And so in the end, if they continue to refuse uh, to repent, even when the whole church goes after them, then you just have to put them in the category of an unbeliever, and then what do you do? You start sharing the gospel. You, you go, it's almost like you go full circle and you start sharing the gospel and saying, hey, I'm concerned that this may mean that you don't know Christ. Have you truly come to know Christ? Do you, do you, have you just been coming to church thinking you're saved when you're really not? Because there's, there's no fruit in your life right now that evidences that you know the Lord and, and uh, you, know, you aren't in any position right now to be confident of your salvation. And so you begin to, to share the gospel. I've told you this in the past, I think there's a, um, a step that's not mentioned here, that's just a, assumed or a, implied um, throughout the scriptures, and it's not a fifth step, it's more like a pre-step, and, and what I mean by that is, is, is what's, what we could call self-discipline, self-discipline, right, this is church discipline, right, it's called self-discipline. And uh, it, it's what we do at communion, First Corinthians 11, verses 31 and 32. We're told to examine ourselves and to judge ourselves, right? And, and basically deal with sin in our own lives to the point where we don't have to have somebody confront us about our sin, that it never gets to the point where, where we need the, 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 the input um, or the influence of others uh, to, to address the sinful issues in our hearts, And so that's the process, and uh, again, we have many pictures in the scriptures, illustrations of this process being played out. We don't have time to, to look at them, but I have written them down uh, on, on the outline sheet this morning that you might use for discussion tonight in, in, in small group, but there's, there's cases of immorality uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul confronted the church in Corinth for not addressing a, a sinful situation in their church. Um, I might just turn there because uh, there is a, a specific portion of that text is, that applies to us in this situation. Notice um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now notice this, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and with the swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. They thought he was talking about, hey, you need to cut off all relationships with unbelievers. With every immoral person, you need to cut off relations. Well, if that was the case, how would we ever win anybody to Christ? How would anybody come to Christ if we just kind of circled the wagons and said, you know, let's keep as unbelievers as far away from us as possible? That, that's not what he was saying. Notice what he did say. Verse 11. I actually wrote to you not to associate with any what? So-called brother... In other words, someone who's professing to be a Christian, if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do, not, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves." And so again, there's some helpful uh, advice there for us from the Apostle Paul is, is if we have an opportunity to interact with our brother um, who's professing to be a, a believer, um, who's living in some sort of sinful lifestyle here as, as, as um, um, labeled here in verse 11, uh, we're not just to sit down and eat with them like everything's okay and just get together like like. There was no problem, right? If we do have interaction with that person, it needs to be for the sole purpose of confronting them in love about their sin. And, and so God wants that to be, again, turning up the heat, if you will, uh, that this is serious and, and they need to address it. There's an example of uh, church discipline for someone who is idle. Um, a busy body, 2nd Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, there's an example of church discipline for someone who is spreading heresy in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, and then there's an example in Titus chapter 3 of someone who's being divisive, causing factions and stirring up conflict within the body. And so a church discipline really needs to be exercised against any sin that threatens, number one, the orthodoxy of the church. In other words, messing with the doctrine or theology of the church. And number two, any sin that threatens the purity of the church. And number three, any sin that threatens the unity of the church. And so that's very important that we understand orthodoxy, purity, and unity. That's all about protecting the body. Now, why do we do this? The purpose. Very simply, number one, we've already talked about this, is to restore Galatians 6.1 says to restore, that Matthew 18 says to win your brother. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, after that man repented, after they, they applied church discipline, he repented and Paul tells him to reaffirm your love for this person. And so it's all about restoration, it's not condemnation, it's restoration. This isn't a, a negative thing, this is a positive thing. So the goal of church discipline is not to embarrass a person or, or punish a person, but to restore them to a right relationship with God and the church. So restoration, number one. Number two is purification. Purification. Um, I think the, the passage that, that, that I always go to when it comes to church discipline and it just is a natural result is 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter five verse 20. Here it's talking about um, not receiving an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. There's that two or three witnesses thing again, which is, by the way, an Old Testament um, principle. God would never let anybody be condemned without uh, two or three witnesses. But notice it says in verse 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be what? Fearful of sinning. And so how does this process have a purifying effect on our body? Well, number one, it makes us fearful of our own propensity to sin Right? We, we should be afraid of the deceptive and destructive nature of sin that it has the power to deceive and destroy all of us. None of us are above it. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. I had a nightmare last night about disqualifying myself from the ministry. I've been meditating on this for all day yesterday, thinking about what we were going to have to do this morning, and I, it freaked me out in my dreams, <laughs> I'm not saying that uh, I don't know how dreams work. All I know is I had this nightmare. And I thought, how interesting, right, that it makes you fearful of sinning. It makes you fearful not only of your own propensity to sin, but of the consequences of sin. That the sin has consequences, that, that God is holy and he wants his church to be holy too. And that's why he doesn't want us to tolerate sin in the members of His church. And so if some of you may be here this morning and you're contemplating sin or maybe you're flirting with sin right now and maybe you maybe are guilty of committing some of the same sins that we've talked about this morning. Well, guess what? You need to be hopefully the the, the God will put the, the fear of him in you this morning that will lead you to repentance. And ultimately, the purpose is, is for glorification, for glorification, that when we obey God's command, it brings him honor and glory. It exalts his holy character and his holy standard that he's laid down for us in, in his word. It protects and preserves the testimony of Jesus Christ and his church. And so ultimately, it's glorify God. And, and of course, the pattern, the, the pattern is that of, of God disciplining his children, Disciplining the church. Notice Revelation 3.19. This, this is what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea. Remember the church that was lukewarm? And so he confronted them, he rebuked them. And notice he says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. It's like the parent who you know who 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 knows you know they love their kids so much right when they see them disobeying god's word and dishonoring their authority that God has placed over them, i.e., the parents, right? They go out on a search and rescue mission because they're now outside of the circle of blessing. The child is outside the circle of blessing when they disobey or dishonor their parents, and so what does the parent do? The parent goes on a search and rescue mission, right, to go bring them back inside the circle of blessing. And how do they do that? They have the rod and they have reproof. That's what God. Those, those are the tools that God has equipped us with as parents. To, to use the rod as, in an appropriate way on our children and then to use reproof, which is correcting them with our words. In Hebrews chapter 12, you're familiar with this text that talks about how God disciplines those he loves. Even as a father, right, disciplines his children. And, and while all discipline is not fun, <laughs> when it's happening, I, I'll, I'll, I never like getting spanked. And, and believe it or not, I never liked spanking my kids. But I got spanked, and I have spanked my kids. <laughs> why? Because my parents love me enough to spank me, and I love my kids enough to have spanked them when it was appropriate. And in the same way God does that, right? To, to grow us and to mature us and to, to help us become more like him. You know, when you think about it, ultimately our lack or or our unwillingness to speak the truth in love to one another reveals a lack of love for God and a lack of love for our neighbor. And it also exposes a love for ourselves. And the reason why sometimes we don't follow through on what the Bible says about speaking the truth in love and confronting others in love is because we love ourselves more than we love other people. And we're more concerned about what people will think of us and how they might respond to us. And it's all about us. And it's not about us. It's about God and his word and it's about this, this other person. I love that book that we give to all of our first time, or I should say our, our new members to read in, in our Life at Lakeside class. All of you who are members, you remember reading this book, Why Church Matters, um, by, by Joshua Harris. And he's got this brilliant chapter in there. My favorite chapter is about choosing a church. And he gives uh, like 10 criteria in order to help you choose a church. And, and one of the ones kind of shocked me when I first read it. He says, You need to ask yourself before joining a church, becoming become, become a member of a church, Uh, If they're willing to kick you out, you're like, that's kind of odd to be thinking about, right? As you're joining a church, would they be willing to kick me out? He says, why should you be excited about the potential of being expelled from a church? He says, I gain a wonderful sense of protection knowing that if I committed a scandalous sin and showed no repentance, my church wouldn't put up with it. They would plead with me to change, they would patiently confront me with God's word, and eventually if I refused to change, they would lovingly kick me out. But at the same time, they would graciously restore me the moment I did repent. And so we have an opportunity, beloved, to put into practice some very difficult principles in God's word. Um And I'm so thankful that we have a family this morning who is leading the way in doing something that's very hard, something that's very difficult, something that's not easy, but they're willing to do it because they know it's right. And they want to honor the Lord and uh, we need to follow their example and honor the Lord and honor honor them. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word and how it's clearly laid out not just our responsibility, but the privilege that we have of being a part of a search and rescue team whenever one of us strays away from the flock. And I pray that we'd, we'd see that this morning as, as the positive thing that it is, that we have a, a, an opportunity, Lord, and we, 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 we are here this morning with great anticipation as we're even being trained um, as a search and rescue team this morning, what, what we need to do, we, 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 we anticipate being able to reach out to our lost brother and to bring him home bring him back to a place of safety and so we ask that you would be glorified and honored through this process and that you would comfort and encourage this dear family as they go through this together and lord that we would they would get a sense that they're going through it together with us and that lord we would uh, just have the joy uh, of seeing uh, your your process um, accomplish the purposes for, for why you instituted it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.